0: good morning. I thought I was done with this sweater. I guess not. And by the way, I know that a lot of you know that I like snow, but I am not the one that's praying for it now. Um, I'm ready for spring to come. Uh, several years ago, I read a book that had a big impact on me. It's a book that I think most of you have heard of. It's by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in one of the chapters, Covey rep- Recommended an exercise that you could do to help you determine what really matters in life to you. He said, and it's, the exercise was something like this, he said, imagine that you are at a funeral and people have gathered together to honor the deceased and different ones share stories about the person and they talk about what that person meant to them and and on and on it goes. And then at a certain point, You make your way up to the casket now that the funeral is over. And when you reach the casket and look inside, you're absolutely shocked to discover that the person in the casket is you five years or so into the future. And he said, what would you want to be said about you at your own funeral, if you had the ability to craft what people would say about you, what would it be? And he was suggesting that this could help us determine how to live now to make sure that we get that response sometime in the future. The things we wouldn't probably want to be known for are that we were well-educated or that we were wealthy or that we were handsome or we were beautiful or some of these kinds of things are not the things that would matter to us at that moment. No, there'd be other things and the point of the exercise is to start now doing the things that really matter the most so that those things will be true about you on that day. Now recently I thought about this exercise because I received a book in the mail that somebody sent me and I don't know who but um, it was a book that talked about making sure that you kind of go the distance with your life, that just because you're 55 or 65, it doesn't mean that your best years are behind you. That really, those years could be the very best years of your life. And sometimes I think we have this kind of resignation he was talking about, you know, this resignation that, that when we reach a certain age, you know, like when you're maybe 62 or whatever, you say, I'm, I'm kind of... I'm slowing down, you know, I'm done. And the greater contribution, he said, that most people make are after that point. You have a certain wisdom, you have a certain understanding, there are certain things that are true about you that allow you to make a great, more significant contribution later on in life. But this author suggested an exercise that was very similar to what Covey was suggesting he said, sit down and write your own obituary, which I know these aren't really pleasant thoughts here. And so I decided to do an abbreviated version of that. In other words, I didn't want to write it out in long sentences like Tim was this and Tim was that. But I I did think about the question, what is it that I would hope that people would say about me at my funeral or in my obituary? And as I thought about it, I realized that the thing that I would hope would be the first most important thing was that I loved God that I walked with God I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor I'm not trying to spiritualize this as I put together my list I realize that really is the thing that would matter the most to me because I'm looking forward to that day when I hear those words from Jesus well done good and faithful servant that's what I want to hear In some way, his opinion of me is the only one that counts. And so that really would be my top thing. I knew God. I walked with God. And it was sincere, sincere relationship with God. But the second thing that I hoped people would say about me is that I loved well. And when I thought about this one, I thought I'm not positive that that that's what people would necessarily say now about me. I, I mean, people would not say I didn't love, it's not that. It's just that if people were talking about my qualities or attributes or whatever. I wasn't positive that this would be really near the top of the list. Well, he just—he just was so filled with love toward other people. The problem is that I think this is the most important thing. Of the uh, both of those things, really, really matter that we love well. You remember that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 what has called, been called the love chapter. He said, even if you're gifted, even if you're sacrificial, even if you're faith-filled, if you do not have love, you are nothing. Even if you give away everything you have, if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. He closes that chapter by saying these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of them is love. And of course, Jesus affirmed the same thing when he was asked the question, which of the 613 Old Testament laws is the greatest? And by the way, that question, he was not asking the question, which one is the greatest? What he was asking which was which type of command? You know, back in Jesus' day, people were looking for a grid through which to determine which actions are the best and which are not as important. And... And Jesus said, well, the type of command through which you should live your life is number one, to love the Lord your God. That's, a, that's a, a grid through which you want to live your entire life. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he said, and the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself because if you do these two things, everything else falls into place. Everything else fits into these two. Which brings me to my takeaway here today. Love matters matters most. And Jesus demonstrated this through his last words. They want to focus on what Jesus said to his mother as she was standing at the cross there and what Jesus said to the disciple who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. I want to focus on what he said to those two. But Jesus, of course, even being on the cross demonstrated his amazing love. And a lot of the things he said demonstrated his love. Last week we began this new series titled Famous Last Words. I made the point last week that what people say at the end of their lives reveals not only what they're thinking necessarily at that moment, but also they tend to say what matters to them the most. And I think this is especially true when you think about Jesus Christ and and all that he was suffering on the cross, the pain he was enduring, but also just, just being exhausted. The fact that he said anything at all, I think, is kind of remarkable. But he said seven things. He made seven statements. They're called the seven last words of Christ, but they're really seven statements he made. The first one was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was talking about those who were gathered at the cross there. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then the second thing he said was to the guy that was hanging next to him on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And in both of these statements, again, it's it's a reflection of his love. You know, love does not take into account a wrong sufferer. There's that statement about forgiveness and inviting this guy to join him and paradise was a statement of his amazing love but then he talked to his mother and he was speaking about the guy that was standing next to his mother john the youngest of jesus's disciples and he said to his mom behold your son and then he said to john there's your mother and that's where we're going to focus here today. Now, if you were here last week, you know that after Jesus said these three things, darkness came over the land for three hours. And Jesus was silent, and I think God was silent. In fact, in all of history, it might be the one time in all of history where God was completely silent. It was an indictment, I think, on the world. But then when you get to the end, toward the very end, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he said four more things He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty, which is more significant than it may seem. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and it is finished, which is what I want to talk about on Easter. It can be translated paid in full." Now, when I think about Jesus dying on the cross, um, I always tend to focus on what Jesus endured for us and the suffering of Jesus. I view the entire scene from the perspective of our Savior and what he endured for us from the point in which he was betrayed, which was painful. I mean, we tend to think, well, Jesus knew it was coming. It didn't bother him. No, it was hard for Jesus that all of his friends betrayed him, especially Judas, of course, but they all fled from him going all the way up to the cross and the crucifixion. He suffered in so many different ways, and I think it's appropriate to consider the story from Jesus' perspective. But as I was reflecting on what Jesus said in this third statement about mother, here's your son, son, here's your mother, those statements, when I thought about that, the question came to my mind, what about the family of Jesus? I don't know that I've ever thought of the story from their perspective and wondered what was what was going on there and what's interesting to me about this is that they weren't there with the exception of Jesus' mom and a couple other relatives, as we'll see in a minute, none of Jesus' siblings, it appears, were standing at the cross. None of them were there. And it kind of raises the question, which I want to talk about in a little bit. Now, some of you may be surprised to discover that Jesus had any siblings at all. We know about these siblings from Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus, early on in his ministry, went to his hometown of Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, he, he went into the, the synagogue there, and he began to teach the people. Now, the synagogue in biblical times was like, kind of like a small church. Would have been very similar to the small churches you see throughout West Virginia. Probably would have only held a couple dozen people. So sometimes when we think of a synagogue, we think of hundreds of people there. But it was a lot smaller than that, and Jesus began to teach the people and as he taught the people, they were amazed. They didn't, they didn't just think he's a good teacher. They were shocked. They were really, really surprised by it. And they asked among themselves, where did this guy get this stuff? You know, how can he teach like this? And where did he get the power to do the miracles that we've heard about? And then the text indicates that they then asked a couple more questions found in Mark 6 and verse 3. Speaking about Jesus, they asked, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. The people in Jesus' hometown could not imagine how this this carpenter who was raised in his midst in their midst, who had a very normal family, could possibly be such a profound teacher and worker of miracles, and they they discounted him for that reason. They rejected him for that reason. You know, Jesus himself had said a prophet's not welcome in his own town. It's just hard to view him as being special when you were raised with him and you saw him playing in the street then you realize who he was and they struggle with that but in Mark 6 we discover the fact that he had four younger brothers and he had at least two sisters whose names we don't know and so then we fast forward to the scene of the cross and I'm saying where are they? Why aren't any of the family members there, immediate family anyway, besides Mary, she's standing there? They're noticeably absent. Now, there are some other relatives that are standing there. Uh, Specifically, I think there were two of Jesus' aunts that were there. One was a woman named Salome, who was the sister of Mary, and then there was another woman that was standing there, and likely... She was the wife of Joseph, Jesus' father's brother. Did you put that together? She was, her name was Mary. She was his aunt as well on on Jesus' earthly father's side. The historian Eusebius talks about this. He wrote about this. He lived in 300 AD. And he said, Clopas, who is married to Mary, who's listed in the story, Clopas was Joseph's brother. And so that would make Clofus' wife Mary Jesus' aunt. And so what I see here is Mary and two aunts and maybe another woman. I will say that in the reading of the text, it is hard to tell whether or not there are three women and John standing there or four because of the way the Greek is and because of the punctuation. It's hard to tell whether it's three or four women. A scholar by the name of J.P. Lands, though, suggests that it's four, he says they were his mother, Mary, his mother's sister, Salome, then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. But where are the brothers and sisters? Where's the rest of the family? And again, it begs the question, why aren't they there? And scholars believe that part of the reason they weren't there is that they didn't believe in Jesus now, we know this throughout his ministry that on occasion it's said about those guys that they didn't believe about Jesus. They didn't, they didn't think he was who he was claiming to be. They, they did not believe in him. And as a result, they may not have wanted to identify with him at the crucifixion. That could be kind of dangerous, don't you think, to be standing there and be identified as a brother or sister of, of this one that got in trouble from their perspective. And I think that's why they they didn't show up. They didn't put their trust in Jesus Christ until after he rose again from the dead. And and then we discover that some of them, maybe all of them, did believe in Christ. We don't know for sure, but we know two of the brothers did. It was James and Jude who wrote New Testament books. And so they eventually did put their trust in Christ. Christ. Some have suggested that they didn't live nearby, which was a true statement. They lived kind of far away. And maybe they didn't even know about it. Maybe there wasn't even enough time to get there. Obviously, the the trial and everything took place really quickly. But I I don't buy it. Mary was there. Mary was there. She would have been with them. And if she'd heard this was happening and she was standing there, she would have told the boys... She would have told the sisters, come with me, join me, but they wouldn't even come and support her. And so Jesus was hanging there alone with his mom standing at the cross and the two aunts were there. But I understand why they may have been afraid. And then from the cross, Jesus fulfilled the fifth of the Ten Commandments. He said he honored his father and his mother. And again, I I am a little surprised by that because I just am thinking from a human perspective, my own perspective. When I am sick or I don't feel well, I don't want to talk about anything, and I'm usually focusing on what I'm going through. You know, if I'm in pain, like there have been times before where my throat was raw, and I was in a lot of pain, and I wasn't thinking about anyone else's needs but my own. You know, just tolerating it. Jesus went through so much on the cross. And yet he cared for her mom. Now, Joseph, by the way, is out of the way by now. And I hate to put it that way, but he had apparently passed away. Nobody knows exactly what happened to Joseph, but he had most likely passed away. And this is why Jesus felt the need to to take care of his mother. It was his responsibility as the firstborn son to take care of that. But again, I would have excused him if he had forgotten that little detail. But to Jesus, love matters most. Despite his pain and despite his weariness, he looked at his mom that was standing there at the cross and was concerned about her needs more than his own. With this in mind, let's pick up the story beginning again in verse 23. We read when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, the reason I included that soldier part of the story is that I believe that the author here deliberately wanted to present a contrast between what they were doing and the women that are standing at the cross This amazing historic event is happening. It's the most significant moment in history. Or maybe the resurrection is a little bit ahead of it. But the sins of the world are being taken care of. And you got a bunch of soldiers over here that are talking about clothing and who gets what. And their heads are down and they're focused on the material things. They have absolutely no clue what's happening right next to them. And their desire for material wealth, they're missing out on eternal life. They're missing out on what really matters here. In biblical times, clothing was a form of wealth. You know, how many whatever you had, that was, that was a form of wealth. That's not, of course, the way it is in our world today. Today, we, you know, you wear a shirt a few times. If you don't like it, you give it to... You know, the ranch store, Goodwill or something, you know, we give it away. It doesn't, we don't view wealth in that way. But they did in biblical times having clothing like this. And so they were dividing Jesus' garments. And by the way, I hate to bring it up, but I think just I want you to understand the whole picture of the scene here. But in biblical times when somebody was crucified, they took off all their clothing. Because their intention was not to provide great pain to the person on the cross, but great shame as well. This was intended to to scare people from ever doing whatever the people on the crosses did. In the case of Jesus, though, most likely he had a loincloth. And I say this because the, the Jewish religious leaders did not like that practice They hated the immodesty, and so quite likely, I'm thinking in the case of Jesus, they said, this is our prisoner, and we don't want that. And that may be the case, but all the rest of the clothes are being divided among themselves. But when I see this scene, I think of what Jesus said, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world yet lose your soul? And I think of people even today that give their whole lives to the stuff of this world, and they miss out on eternal life. The stuff of this world is not what matters. The stuff of this world, we will all leave behind. It will be divided. Everything we have will be divided among other people. We cannot take it with us. And Christ died so that we could have eternal life and so that we could have the thing that mattered the most and the greatest riches of all. Things we do for the kingdom of God as Christians, by the way, are the things that continue on That's why Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. And it's important we do that because where your treasure is, your heart is. But the soldiers, their heart was over here. And they missed out on this event that was taking place, the forgiveness of their own sin. But let's look at verse 26 again where we focus on the love of Christ for his mom. We read, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now, this probably raises some questions for you, like why did Jesus address his mom as woman? It sounds kind of disrespectful, Hey, woman, here's your son, you know. We wouldn't do that in our culture today. But in biblical times, that, was, that really was actually an expression of honor. It was a respectful term. Dr. Vincent writes, it was a highly respectful and affectionate mode of address. But I think there's a little bit more to the story of why he called her woman. I agree with those scholars who have suggested that the reason he did that is that he wanted his own mother to not see Jesus as his son, but rather as his savior, or her savior. Which might surprise some of you, perhaps. That she needed to see him not as, this is my son. Jesus was becoming the savior of the world, and she herself needed that saving, And again, that might surprise some of you, but she herself needed that forgiveness. Dr. Lenski explains, ever since Jesus took up his work of redemption, a new relation to his mother took precedence over the old relation of mere mother and son. Jesus was still Mary's son, but now she was to see him also and above all her Lord and Savior. And if this is the case, it demonstrates that Jesus had, in those words, a concern both for her physical but also her spiritual condition. Now, the two people that she loved the most were the ones who were standing at the cross there, I believe, anyway. Of all the people on earth, of the people that were gathered there, two of the people there were were the top ones that he loved. One was his mother. Of course, he loved his mother dearly, loved her deeply. The second one was John. John. John was the youngest of the disciples, and he's referred to in the gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus, of course, loved all of the disciples, but there was something special about John and the relationship they shared with one another. And and the reason I believe that Jesus chose John as the one to watch over Mary was because of this relationship. John experienced the love of Christ and he was filled with love and you know that if you read his books in the new testament the gospel of john and first second and third john if you read those i would say the theme of all of them is love i mean the guy talks about love 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 he just talks about love so much and of all the people on the planet to love his mom i think this was the case which kind of explains what you know what about the brothers Why didn't any of them, you know, why didn't Jesus choose one of them? But I think that Jesus was thinking, you know, love matters the most. And John is the one who loves. And it was Jesus' responsibility to do this. Again, the assumption is that Joseph has passed away. He had the right and the responsibility to pick the person that would do this. According to a scholar by the name of Borchert. The traditional role of the oldest son in a Jewish family was to provide for the care of the mother when the husband or father of the house was no longer around to care for the mother. It seems clear that Jesus here fulfilled his family responsibilities as a dutiful son. Jesus knew that the disciple whom he loved would love his mother out of love for him and a great amount of love. And by the way, think of the cost of that. You know, some of you have taken on the responsibility of caring for your parents. And it's most likely, I ha- I didn't, that didn't happen in my case. But it's, I, I know it's a difficult thing. As I talk with people, you love your parents and everything, but it's not easy to do. And then you think in this story here that, that John was asking or Jesus was asking John to do that with his mom. It wasn't even a relative. I want you to take care of her now. You take the responsibility now. It was a tremendous expression of love on John's part to say, yes, of course, of course, I will love her. Now, there are different traditions about what happened with Mary and John. According to Dr. R.C. Lensky, it's reported that John had a house at the foot of Zion Hill in Jerusalem. That's what the tradition is, or one of the traditions. And that Mary lived there for 11 years, and that only after her death did John go to preach into the whole world. But there's another tradition that tells us that Mary died and was buried in Ephesus, where John afterward labored. In other words, the other tradition says that they moved to Ephesus at some point, and both of these, by the way, may be true. In either case, tradition has it that John fulfilled his responsibility. He honored Jesus' request because love matters. It mattered to Jesus and it mattered to John. So, how do we apply this here today? Well, let me ask you some questions. First of all, are you known as a person who loves? Would the people in your world, your friends, your immediate family are perhaps the best test. Your neighbors, other people, would they view you as someone who loves well? Are you a loving person? Because this really, again, matters. It's the greatest command. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's, the, it's what matters the most. Now, when I ask the question, I need to clarify that love is not primarily a feeling. Love is reflected not through our words, but through our deeds. And so it can be reflected in many ways. It's, it's reflected through our serving other people. It's reflected through our willingness to forgive those who wrong us. It's reflected in the kind words that we say, in the kind deeds that we do for other people. It's reflected in being patient with other people, especially when they don't deserve it. It's reflected in putting other people's needs above your own. Or Paul said in First Corinthians, "Love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't brag, it isn't arrogant. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't take into a wrong uh, or take into account a wrong thats suffered. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, all, endures all things. That's what love is all about. Would you be someone who is known for love? Second, I want to make this point that I think our ability to love is related to our relationship with God. We love because He first loved us. So, once again, I ask the question how is your relationship with God? Because I think that it does flow from that. Jesus said, Abide in me, let my words abide in you, and then you'll bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. It is hard to love people, it is really hard. But when we experience the love of Christ in our lives, I think it allows us to love other people. Third, a few weeks ago, Arch talked about uh, loving our parents well by honoring them. Honor your father and your mother. It's the first commandment found in the Bible that has a promise associated with it that if you love your parents well, honor them, that you'll live long and you'll prosper on the earth. And so when I ask that question, are you honoring your parents? And do you see that as your responsibility? And then finally, I want to ask some of you, are you sure you have even a relationship with God which comes through faith in Jesus Christ? And if you don't know where you stand with God, I want to point you to last week's service and what I talked about last week, how we receive forgiveness of sin when we put our trust in Jesus Christ who died in our place. He paid the penalty, and when we make him the object of our trust, we receive the gift of eternal life. But I encourage you to listen to that and put your trust in God and in Jesus Christ who died in your place and for your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the love that you have demonstrated to us. It is true that our ability to love is because you first loved us. And we want to be ones who are known for our love. I just think how how our love for one another is the sign to the world that we're really disciples of your son Jesus. By this will all people know that we're your disciples if we have love for one another. So give us the grace, the Lord, to apply these things to our lives, to really care about those in our world, starting with our own family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes our time this morning. My prayer is that God would bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you and give you peace. Have a blessed week. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church/messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.